Hey everybody, this is Jeff. Uh, it's been a while since the last podcast released, and I'm truly sorry about that. Winter is a busy time here in Japan, and up in the wilds of Nagano, the cold, cold winter nights are especially demotivating. After getting all the kids brushed and tucked into bed, I'm quite loth to get out from under the covers and work myself. Nevertheless, I managed to put together this special year-end podcast just in time uh, for the new year. Although I'm not sure you'll get it until after the new year, as iTunes suggested there may be a bit of a delay on that. Anyway, uh, before I get going, I wanted to take a moment to thank everybody who has made a pledge to support the show on Patreon. I truly appreciate your support, and I strongly encourage anyone else who likes the show to also think about making a pledge. Uh, this show is completely independent and commercial-free, and I'd like to keep it that way if possible. I'd also like to apologize if I or anyone on the show uh, has said anything that may have offended anyone. At times, the show can be critical of Japan, but criticism is just one minor element of the show. I'm looking to host a broad spectrum of people and approach the subject of life in Japan from a variety of angles, both positive and negative. And, and if I've been a little bit too negative in the past, I'm definitely hoping to balance that out in the future. Um, I've been living in Japan for the bulk of my adult life. And I'm very grateful for all of the wonderful experiences that I've had in Japan. I say all this because last week, on December 26th, in the middle of the night, someone, quite likely a local Japanese person, vandalized my car by throwing a bunch of persimmon fruit at it. Uh, whoever they were, uh, they did a pretty good job of it. The roof and every side of the car was completely covered with slimy persimmon guts. Thankfully, it wasn't anything serious. A couple hours of work was enough to wash it all away, but my wife and I haven't yet been able to wash the incident from our memories. We're constantly wondering who could have done such a thing. Who was it? And why did they do it? Uh, what did we do to make someone go to such lengths? It's the last thing on my mind before I go to bed at night and the first thing on my mind when I wake up in the morning. Even before having breakfast, I'm compelled to hop outside and take a look at the card to see if whoever did this has returned for round two. Or perhaps something even worse. It's a bit crazy-making to say the least. In any event, on the off chance that the person who did this is listening to the podcast, I'd like to offer a heartfelt apology for whatever I did to offend you. Unfortunately, I have no idea what I did because, well, persimmon fruit don't talk. I truly appreciate the fact that you chose to use persimmon fruit over rocks, but I prefer words if possible. If you have anything to say, whether in praise or blame, of me or the show, when I say you, I mean you as in anybody listening, my whole entire audience, please do not hesitate to contact me. My email is ecowilliam at gmail.com. That's E-C-O-W-I-L-L-I-A-M at gmail.com, not .co.jp, gmail.com. And of course, I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, please contact me and let me know uh, what you think. If I'm doing something that's bothering you, tell me. I'm a, I'm a grown adult. I can stop. Um, 
if I'm doing something that you like, tell me. It's you know, podcasting is a weird thing. You're kind of in a in a black box. You you can hear what people say online sometimes through comments, but I I listen to a shit ton of podcasts and I never comment on any of them. So I, I take it for granted that most people who listen to podcasts even when they like them, they don't actually end up giving any feedback at all to the creators of those podcasts. So, um, you know, I really don't know what people think about the show unless they go out of the way to uh, contact me. So, yeah, uh, shoot me an email or, hey, you know, let's go out and have some coffee or tea together. I'll pay. Just don't throw persimmon at my car or do anything else like that, please. It kind of freaked out my family. Uh, All right. So now that that's been said, I suppose we can uh, continue with our scheduled broadcast. This podcast is going to be a little bit different from the standard format. Rather than uh, interviewing somebody and hearing what they have to say about their experiences in Japan, I've decided to introduce you to the acclaimed poet, author, agricultural science teacher, vegetarian, cellist, and devout Buddhist utopian social activist, Miyazawa Kenji. More specifically, I'd like to introduce you to his most famous poem, Ame ni mo makezu, or as I've translated the title, Don't Give In to the Rain. I'd also like to talk a little bit about his life and times, but first we'll start with the poem. However, before we get going, perhaps we should put on a little mood music. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Okay, here we go. Don't give in to the wind or rain. Don't give in to the winter snow or summer heat. Strong in body, desireless, never angered, always smiling quietly. Taking no more than three cups of brown rice, a little miso soup, and some vegetables each day unmoved by all that transpires, looking, listening, learning, and remembering. Make your home a small thatch-roofed hut among the shade of a pine grove. Should a child take ill in the east, go and care for her. Should a mother grow weary in the west, go and carry her bundles of rice. Should a man lay dying in the south, Go and ease his fears. Should there be a quarrel up north, go and make peace. In times of drought, let your tears flow. In cold summers, walk about in a dither. Branded a fool by all, praised by none, burdenless. Such is the person I wish to be. So that was my translation of the poem, Ameni Momakezu. I'm not actually sure you can call it a poem, though, as such. Uh, it was simply lifted from his personal journal, um, and it was untitled. 
uh, after he died. And the title of the journal entry was November 3rd, 1931. So many Kenji scholars actually just refer to the poem as November 3rd. The famed scholar and translator of Japanese literature, Donald Keane, was dismissive of its overall poetic value, uh, stating that it's not his best work and I quote that it's ironic that it should be the one poem for which he is universally known. End quote. However, the image of him writing this sick in bed with tuberculosis and yet, you know, to the very end, caring nothing about himself and only wanting to help others, I think this is what appeals to Japanese people. This is why the poem is celebrated universally throughout Japan and has become a, uh, a part of the canon. It's been included in the junior high school textbook and many people know much of the poem by heart, actually. I too am drawn to the poem for inspiration and encouragement. And uh, after a year like 216, I think that all of us could use a little inspiration and encouragement, which is why I decided to share it with you. Anyway, for those of you who might be interested in knowing a little bit more about Kenji and his life, I've cobbled together a short biography based on his Wikipedia entry, a Japanese manga biography, a video of him on YouTube put out by Japanology, and a couple other books I picked up at the junior high school. I would like to read a proper biography of Kenji in English, but no such work currently exists, so... If you're interested in doing a biography, please do. We need that done. Kenji was born in 1896, the eldest son of a rather wealthy pawnbroker in a rather poor farming district called Hanamaki in Iwate Prefecture, which is in northeastern Honshu, the main island of Japan. Despite having a short life, he died at the age of 37. He was very prolific as a writer, penning some 3,000 pages a month during his most active years. Kenji's family were pious Buddhists of the true essence of the Pure Land teaching, or for short, the Pure Land sect, which in Japanese is called Jodo Shinshu, the most widely practiced branch of Buddhism in Japan today. Kenji's father was an organizer of regular district meetings in which local monks and Buddhist thinkers gave lectures, and Kenji, together with his younger sister Toshi, often took part in these meetings from an early age. Kenji was a keen student of natural history and also developed an interest in poetry as a teenager under the influence of the local poet Takuboku Ishikawa. After graduating from middle school, he helped out at his father's pawn shop becoming increasingly troubled by his family's interest in money-making and social status. By the age of 22, Kenji had already composed Two Tales for Children and was actively composing Tonka, a classical genre of Japanese poetry similar to haiku, but consisting of five lines broken up into the syllables 57577. In high school, Kenji converted to the Hokke sect of Nichiren Buddhism after reading the Lotus Sutra which brought him into conflict with his father. In 1918, he graduated from Morioka Agriculture and Forestry College in the same year embracing vegetarianism. A bright student, upon graduation, Kenji was given a position as a special research student in geology, developing an interest in soil science and fertilizers. 
During this period, Kenji's younger sister, Toshi, had fallen ill while studying at Japan Women's University, prompting him and his mother to travel to Tokyo to look after her. He returned home after his sister recovered early the following year. As a result of the differences with his father and his repugnance for commerce in general, and the pawn shop in particular, Kenji yielded his inheritance to his younger brother, Seiroku, and left Hanamaki to live in Tokyo in January of 1921 at the age of 25. There in Tokyo, he joined the Pillar of the Nation Society, a lay-oriented Nichiren Buddhist organization founded by the Buddhist scholar and preacher Tanaka Chigaku, and spent several months in dire poverty preaching Nichiren Buddhism in the streets of Tokyo. After eight months of this, Kenji had basically abandoned writing Tanka and turned his hand instead to the composition of free verse and writing children's stories under the influence of another Nichiren priest who dissuaded him from the priesthood by convincing him that Nichiren believers best serve their faith by striving to embody its teachings in their chosen profession. By the end of the year, Kenji had managed to sell one of these stories for 5 yen, which poignantly was the only payment he received for his writings during his lifetime. Soon after this, Kenji's beloved younger sister took ill again, and he was prompted to return to Hanamaki to care for her. While there, he took a position as teacher at the local agricultural school. This time, sadly, Toshi was not to recover. On November 27, 1922, at the young age of 24, she died from tuberculosis, a traumatic blow from which Kenji was never to recover. On the day of her passing, Kenji composed three poems collectively entitled A Voiceless Lament, or in Japanese, Musei Doukoku. After Toshi's death, Kenji decided to stay in Hanamaki and teach agricultural science at the agricultural high school. During this period, he managed to put out a collection of poetry entitled Harutoshura, or Spring and the Demon, thanks to some borrowings and a major subvention from a producer of natto. In other words, his poetry was literally brought to you by natto. Kenji's collection of children's stories and fairy tales, The Restaurant of Many Orders, came out in December of the same year and was also self-published and largely ignored by the reading public, although celebrated today. Although his work did come to the attention of the poets Kotaro Takamura and Shinpei Kusano, who greatly admired his writing and sought to introduce it to the literary world, neither of these works was a commercial success. At the agricultural school, Kenji was viewed by his students as a passionate but eccentric teacher. He insisted that learning came through first-hand experience of things, and regularly took his students out into the laboratory of nature, not only for scientific observation, but sometimes just for an enjoyable walk in the hills. It is said that Kenji also had them write and perform plays, something that I also do with my students. In 1926, at the age of 30, Kenji quit his post as teacher to become a full-time farmer, and soon after established the Rasu Chijin Society, which is thought to have been derived from the kanji chi, or earth, and jin, or person, that is, the earth person society. 
Through the society, Kinji introduced new agricultural techniques and more resistant strains of rice to local farmers, and also engaged in literary readings, plays, music, and other cultural activities. However, in 1928, two years after its inception, the society was disbanded by local authorities as Japan became swept up in militarism. Kenji was a staunch advocate of natural organic fertilizers at a time when many preferred Western chemical fertilizers, and not every local farmer was grateful for Kenji's efforts to sell them on the stuff. Some sneered at the armchair agronomist playing farmer, and others expressed disappointment that the fertilizers Kenji introduced were not having the desired effects. Farmers were quick to blame Kenji for crop failures. It certainly didn't help matters that Kenji was not completely economically independent from his father, to whom the farmers were often indebted when their crops failed. Moreover, Kenji's defection to the Lotus sect likely soured his public image even more, as these local farmers, like his father, were strict adherents to the Pierland sect. In one of Kenji's poems, he describes the farmer bluntly telling him that all his efforts have done no good for anyone. After the Great War, there was a proposal for the League of Nations to accept Esperanto as their working language. The proposal failed by one vote of opposition, the French, but scholarly fascination with the language has never died, and Kenji too was smitten with the idea of creating a universal language to connect all people without favoring any language or people. He even translated some of his poems into Esperanto. Some two years after his sister Toshi's death, Kenji took ill with acute pneumonia, most likely an expression of tuberculosis which he had acquired while taking care of his sick sister. Worried about his deteriorating health, family and friends tried to get him to abandon his vegetarianism and eat more nutrient-dense foods like fish, meat, and seafood, but he refused. After being tricked into eating carp liver by one of his worried caretakers, Kenji broke down in tears. Although he was able to recover from the pneumonia, Kenji continued to struggle from tuberculosis pleurisy, a condition in which the linings of the lungs and the chest become inflamed, off and on, until the end of his life, and was often incapacitated for months at a time. His health nonetheless improved sufficiently for him to take on work as a consultant at a rock-crushing company in 1931. The respite was brief, however, as by September of that year, on a visit to Tokyo, Kenji once again took ill with pneumonia and was forced to return to Hanamaki to convalesce. In the autumn of 1933, his health seemed to have improved enough for him to watch a local Shinto procession from his doorway, at which time a group of local farmers approached and engaged him in conversation about fertilizer for an hour. Kenji died the following day, exhausted by the lengthy discussion with the farmers, it is said. Kenji was unfortunate to have lived at a time before the cure for tuberculosis was discovered. His death in 1933 came just 10 years before biochemist Selman Waxman discovered the antibiotic streptomycin, which cures it. Wanting to understand a little bit more about what it would be like to die from tuberculosis, I did some research. To draw a quote from Christian Macmillan's Discovering Tuberculosis, when TB wakes up and gets into the lungs, it eats them from the inside out, slowly diminishing their capacity, causing the chest to fill up with blood and the liquid remains of the lungs. A wet, hacking cough is evocative of TB. The lungs, now in liquid form, are sloshing around in the chest. 
cough that up even in microscopic, impossible to see droplets near other people, and they have a very good chance of getting TB too. Eventually, liquid replaces the lungs. The suffering patients cannot get enough oxygen and respiratory failure occurs. They can no longer breathe and they drown in their own lungs. It's painful, it's drawn out. It's an awful way to die. But before any of this happens, the disease weakens you, diminishes your capacity for work, and puts your family and friends and anyone else who you come into contact with at risk. Individual death is only part of the problem. This is one of the most horrifying descriptions of death I've ever read. And it's important to note that Kenji was halfway through this process, the liquidation of his lungs, when he lied down and wrote the poem Ameni Momakezu. Later, on his deathbed, Kenji asked his father to print 1,000 copies of the Lotus Sutra and distribute them among friends and associates. His family initially had them buried in the family temple, Anjoji. But when the family later decided to convert to Kenji's Nichiren Buddhism in 1951, his remains were moved to the Nichiren Temple, Shinshoji. Sometime after Kenji's death, he became known in his district as Kenji Bosatsu, or Bodhisattva Kenji. For those of you who like the poem, who would like to read more, there's a collection of his poetry, at least one that I'm aware of, that's uh, available in English um, at Amazon.com. And you can also check out his children's stories, which I believe are all translated into English. They include Night on the Galactic Railroad, The Life of Gusko Budori, Matsusaburo of the Wind, Gauche the Cellist, Vegetarian Great Festival, and The Dragon and the Poet. I highly recommend all of these. Um, and I sometimes read them to my children. Speaking of which, uh, finally, in closing, I've asked my daughter and her elder cousin to read the poem in Japanese for you. So in closing of this podcast, the New Year special, please uh, enjoy Amenimo Makezu as read by a six-year-old. Thank you very much, everyone, and I hope you have a pleasant holiday. Happy New Year. あめにも負けず。雨にも負けず。雨にも負けず。雨にも負けず。一、一、一、玄米四号と。<笑> Jibun 
わかり静かにしてそして忘れずドアラの松の林の影の小さなかやぶきの小屋にいて東に病気の子供あれば行って看病あ間違えた看病してやる西に疲れた母あれば行ってその犬の束をもい,おい<笑>み,みんなみんなみんなみんなみに死にそうな人あれば行って怖がらなくてもいい。
味噌と少しの野菜を食べ少しの野菜を食べあらゆることをあらゆることを自分を自分を感情に入れずに感情に入れずによく見聞きしよく見聞きしわかりわかりそして忘れずそして忘れず野原の野原の松野林の松の林の影の小さな影の小さなジェフ早ぶきの早ぶきの小屋にいて小屋にいて東に東に病気の子供あれば病気の子供あれば行って看病してやり行って看病してやり西に西に疲れた母あれば疲れた母あれば行って行ってその稲の束を稲の束をおいおい南に南に死にそうな人あれば死にそうな人あれば行って行って怖がらなくてもいいと怖がらなくてもいいといいいい北に北に喧嘩や喧嘩や訴訟があれば訴訟があればさくちゃん読めるかなはい、キニューズキニューズです